Chapter Nine, Section Four of the History of Mr. Polly by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Adrian Pretzelis. Chapter Nine, Section Four. The next day was Wednesday, and a slack day for the Potwell Inn. It was a hot, close day, full of the murmuring of bees. One or two people crossed by the ferry. An elaborately equipped fisherman stopped for cold meat and dry ginger ale in the bar parlour. Some haymakers came and drank beer for an hour, and afterwards sent jugs and jars by a boy to be replenished. That was all. Mr. Polly had risen early and was busy about the place meditating upon the probable tactics of Uncle Jim. He was no longer strung up to the desperate pitch of the first encounter, but he was grave and anxious. Uncle Jim had shrunken, as all antagonists that are boldly faced shrink, after the first battle, to the negotiable, the vulnerable. Formidable he was, no doubt, but not invincible. He had, under Providence, been defeated once, and he might be defeated altogether. Mr. Polly went about the place considering the militant possibilities of pacific things. Pokers, copper sticks, garden implements, kitchen knives, garden nets, barbed wire, oars, clothes-lines, blankets, pewter-pots, stockings and broken bottles. He prepared a club with a stocking and a bottle inside, upon the best East End model. He swung it round his head once, broke an outhouse window with a flying fragment of glass, and ruined the stocking beyond all darning. He developed a subtle scheme with the cellar flap as a sort of pitfall, but he rejected it finally because a it might entrap the plump woman, and b. he had no use whatsoever for Uncle Jim in the cellar. He determined to wire the garden that evening, burglar fashion, against the possibilities of night attack. Towards two o'clock in the afternoon three young men arrived in a capacious boat from the direction of Lamham, and asked permission to camp in the paddock. It was given all the more readily by Mr. Polly because he perceived in their proximity a possible check upon the self-expression of Uncle Jim. But he did not foresee, and no one could have foreseen, that Uncle Jim, stealing unawares upon the Potwell Inn in the late afternoon, armed with a large rough-hewn stake, should have mistaken the bending form of one of those campers who was pulling a few onions by permission in the garden, for Mr. Polly, and crept upon it swiftly and silently, and smitten its wide invitation unforgettably and unforgivably. It was an error impossible to explain. The resounding whack went up to heaven, the cry of amazement and Mr. Polly emerged from the inn, armed with the frying-pan he was cleaning, to take his reckless assailant in the rear. Uncle Jim, realising his error, fled blaspheming into the arms of the other two campers, who were returning from the village with butcher's meat and groceries. 
They caught him, they smacked his face with steak, and punched him with a bursting parcel of lump sugar. They held him, though he bit them, and their idea of punishment was to duck him. They were hilarious, strong, young stockbrokers' clerks, territorials and seasoned boating men. They ducked him as though it was romping, and all that Mr. Polly had to do was to pick up lumps of sugar for them, and wipe them on his sleeve, and put them on a plate, and explain that Uncle Jim was a notorious bad character, and not quite right in the head. "'Got a regular obsession that the missus is his aunt,' said Mr. Polly, expanding it. "'Perfect nuisance he is.' But he caught a glance of Uncle Jim's eye as he receded before the camper's urgency that boded ill for him, and in the night he had a disagreeable idea that perhaps his luck might not hold for the third occasion. That came soon enough, so soon indeed as the campus had gone. Thursday was the early closing day at Lamham, and next to Sunday the busiest part of the week at the Potwell Inn. Sometimes as many as six boats all at once would be moored against the ferry punt and hiring rowboats. People could either have a complete tea, a complete tea with jam, cake, and eggs, a kettle of boiling water, and find the rest, or refreshments a la carte, as they chose. They sat about, but usually the boiling waterers had a delicacy about using the tables, and grouped themselves humbly on the ground. The complete tiers with jam and eggs got the best tablecloth on the table nearest the steps that led up to the glass-panelled door. The groups about the lawn were very satisfying to Mr. Polly's sense of amenity. To the right were the complete tiers with everything heart could desire, then a small group of three young men in remarkable green and violet and pale blue shirts and two girls in mauve and yellow blouses, with common teas and gooseberry jam, at the green clothless table. Then on the grass, down by the pollarded willow, a small family of hot waterers with a hamper, a little troubled by wasps in their jam, from the nest in the tree, and all in mourning, but happy otherwise. And on the lawn to the right, a ginger-beer lot of apprentices without their collars, and very jocular and happy. The young people in the rainbow shirts and blouses formed the centre of interest. They were under the leadership of a gold-spectacled senior with a fluting voice and an air of mystery. He ordered everything, and showed a particular knowledge of the qualities of the Potwell jams preferring gooseberry with much insistence. Mr. Polly watched him, christened him the benefulous influence, glanced at the prentices, and went inside and down into the cellar in order to replenish the stock of stone ginger beer which the plump woman had allowed to run low during the preoccupations of the campaign. It was in the cellar that he first became aware of the return of Uncle Jim. He became aware of him as a voice, a voice not only hoarse but thick, as voices thicken 
under the influence of alcohol. "'Where's that muddy-faced mongrel?' cried Uncle Jim. "'Let him come out to me. Where's that blighted wisp with the punt-pole? I got a word to say to him. Come out of it, you pot-bellied chunk of dirtiness, you. Come out and have your ugly face wiped. I got a thing for you. Hear me? He's hiding. That's what he's doing, said the voice of Uncle Jim, dropping for a moment to sorrow, and then with a great increment of wrathfulness. Come out of my nest, you blinking cuckoo, you, or I'll cut your silly insides out. Come out of it, you pock-marked rat, stealing another man's home away from him. Come out and look me in the face, you squinting son of a skunk. Mr. Polly took the ginger beer and went thoughtfully upstairs to the bar. "'He's back,' said the plump woman, as he appeared. "'I knew he'd come back.' "'I heard him,' said Mr. Polly, and looked about. "'Just give me the old poker-handle that's under the beer-engine.' The door opened softly, and Mr. Polly turned quickly but it was only the pointed nose and intelligent face of the young man with the gilt spectacles and discreet manner. He coughed, and the spectacles fixed Mr. Polly. "'I say,' he said with quiet earnestness, "'there's a chap out here seems to want someone.' "'Why don't he come in?' said Mr. Polly. "'He seems to want you out there.' "'What's he want?' "'I think—' said the spectacled young man, after a thoughtful moment. "'He appears to have brought you a present of fish.' "'Isn't he shouting?' "'He is a little boisterous. He'd better come in.' The manner of the spectacled young man intensified. "'Ah, uh, I wish you'd come out and persuade him to go away,' he said. "'His language isn't quite the thing. Mm, ladies. It never was," said the plump woman, her voice charged with sorrow. Mr. Polly moved towards the door and stood with his hand on the handle. The gold-spectacled face disappeared. "'Now, my man,' came his voice from outside, "'be careful what you're saying.' "'Who in all the world and hereafter are you to call me my man?' cried Uncle Jim, in the voice of one astonished and pained beyond endurance, and added scornfully, "'You gold-eyed geezer, you!' "'Tut-tut!' said the gentleman in gilt glasses. "'Wistrain yourself!' Mr. Polly emerged, poker in hand, just in time to see what followed. Uncle Jim, in his shirt-sleeves and a state of ferocious décolletage, was holding something—yes, a, a dead eel—by means of a piece of newspaper about its tail, holding it down and back, and a little sideways, in such a way as to smite it upwards and hard. It struck the spectacled gentleman under the jaw with a peculiar dead thud, 
and a cry of horror came from the two seated parties at the sight. One of the girls shrieked piercingly, Horace! and every one sprang up. The sense of helping numbers came to Mr. Polly's aid. Drop it! he cried, and came down the steps, waving his poker, and thrusting the spectacled gentleman before him as once heroes were wont to wield the ox-hide shield. Uncle Jim gave ground suddenly, and trod upon the foot of a young man in a blue shirt, who immediately thrust at him violently with both hands. "'Let go!' howled Uncle Jim. "'That's the chap I'm looking for!' And pressing the head of the spectacled gentleman aside, smote hard at Mr. Polly. But at the sight of this indignity inflicted upon the spectacled gentleman, a woman's heart was stirred, and a pink parasol drove hard and true at Uncle Jim's wiry neck, and at the same moment the young man in the blue shirt sought to collar him, and lost his grip again. "'Suffragettes!' gasped Uncle Jim, with the ferule at his throat, everywhere, and aimed a second, more successful blow at Mr. Polly. "'Wow!' said Mr. Polly. But now the jam and egg party was joining in the fray. A stout, yet still fairly able-bodied gentleman in black and white checks inquired, "'What's the fellow up to? Ain't there no police here?' And it was evident that once more public opinion was rallying to the support of Mr. Polly. "'Oh, come on, then, all the lot of you!' cried Uncle Jim, and backing dexterously whirled the eel round in a destructive circle. The pink sunshade was torn from the hand that gripped it, and whirled athwart the complete but unadorned tea-things on the green table. "'Collar him! Someone get hold of his collar!' cried the gold-spectacled gentleman, coming out of the scrimmage, retreating up the steps to the inn-door, as if to rally his forces. "'Stand clear!' you blessed mantle ornaments cried uncle jim stand clear and retired backing staving off attack by means of the whirling eel mr polly undeterred by a sense of grave damage done to his nose pressed the attack in front the two young men in violet and blue skirmished on uncle jim's flanks the man in black and white checks sought still further outflanking possibilities and two of the apprentice boys ran for oars. The gold-spectacled gentleman, as if inspired, came down the wooden steps again, seized the tablecloth of the jam and egg party, lugged it from under the crockery with inadequate precautions against breakage, and advanced with compressed lips, curious lateral crouching movements, swift flashings of his glasses, and a general suggestion of bullfighting in his pose and gestures. Uncle Jim was kept busy, and unable to plan his retreat with any strategic soundness. He was, moreover, manifestly a little nervous about the river in his rear. He gave ground in a curve, and so came right across the rapidly abandoned camp of the family in mourning, crunching a teacup under his heel, oversetting the teapot, and finally tripping backwards over the hamper. 
the eel flew out at a tangent from his hand and became a mere looping relic on the sward. "'Hold him!' cried the gentleman in spectacles. "'Collar him!' and, moving forward with extraordinary promptitude, wrapped the best tablecloth around Uncle Jim's arms and head. Mr. Polly grasped his purpose instantly. The man in checks was scarcely slower, and in another moment Uncle Jim was no more than a bundle of smothered blasphemy and a pair of wildly active legs. "'Duck him!' panted Mr. Polly, holding on to the earthquake. "'Best thing! Duck him!' The bundle was convulsed by paroxysms of anger and protest. One boot got to the hamper and sent it ten yards. "'Go into the house for a clothesline, someone,' said the gentleman in gold spectacles. "'He'll get out of this in a moment.' One of the apprentices ran. "'Bird-nets in the garden!' shouted Mr. Polly. "'In the garden!' The apprentice was divided in his purpose, and then, suddenly, Uncle Jim collapsed and became a limp, dead-seeming thing under their hands. His arms were drawn inward, his legs bent up under his person, and so he lay. "'Fainted,' said the man in checks, relaxing his grip. "'A fit, perhaps,' said the man in spectacles. "'Keep hold!' said Mr. Polly, too late, for suddenly Uncle Jim's arms and legs flew out like springs released. Mr. Polly was tumbled backwards and fell over the broken teapot and into the arms of the father in mourning. Something struck his head dazzlingly. In another second Uncle Jim was on his feet, and the tablecloth enshrouded the head of the man in checks. Uncle Jim manifestly considered he had done all that honour required of him and against overwhelming numbers and the possibility of reiterated duckings, flight is no disgrace. Uncle Jim fled. Mr. Polly sat up after an interval of an indeterminate length among the ruins of an idyllic afternoon. Quite a lot of things seemed scattered and broken, but it was difficult to grasp it all at once. He stared between the legs of people he became aware of a voice speaking slowly and complainingly. "'Someone ought to pay for those tea-things,' said the father in mourning. "'We didn't bring em here to be danced on, not by no manner of means.' There followed an anxious peace for three days, and then a rough man in a blue jersey, in the intervals of trying to choke himself with bread and cheese and pickled onions, broke out abruptly into information. "'Jim's been lagged again, missus,' he said. "'What?' said the landlady. "'Our Jim?' "'Your Jim,' said the man, and after an absolutely necessary pause for swallowing, added, "'Stealing a hatchet.' He did not speak for some moments, and then he replied to Mr. Polly's inquiries. "'Yes, a hatchet, down Lamham way night before last. "'What did he steal a hatchet for?' asked the plump woman. "'He said he wanted a hatchet.' "'I wonder what he wanted a hatchet for,' said Mr. Polly, thoughtfully. "'I dare say he had a use for it,' said the gentleman in the blue jersey, 
and he took a mouthful that amounted to conversational suicide. There was a prolonged pause in the little bar, and Mr. Polly did some rapid thinking. He went to the window and whistled. "'I shall stick it,' he whispered at last. "'Hatchets or no hatchets?' He turned to the man with the blue jersey when he thought him clear for speech again. "'How much did you say they'd given him?' he asked. Three months,' said the man in the blue jersey, and refilled anxiously, as if alarmed at the momentary clearness of his voice. Those three months passed all too quickly. Months of sunshine and warmth, of varied novel exertion in the open air, of congenial experiences, of interest and wholesome food and successful digestion, months that browned Mr. Polly and hardened him, and saw the beginnings of his beard, months marred only by one anxiety, an anxiety Mr. Polly did his utmost to suppress. The day of reckoning was never mentioned, it is true, by either the plump woman or himself, but the name of Uncle Jim was written in letters of glaring silence across their intercourse. As the term of that respite drew to an end, his anxiety increased, until at last it even trenched upon his well-earned sleep. He had some idea of buying a revolver. At last he compromised upon a small and very foul and dirty rook-rifle, which he purchased in Lamham under the pretext of bird-scaring, and loaded and carefully concealed under his bed from the plump woman's eye. September passed away, October came, and at last came that night in October whose happenings it is so difficult for a sympathetic historian to drag out of their proper nocturnal indistinctiveness into the clear, hard light of positive statement. A novelist should present characters, not uh, vivisect them publicly. The best, the kindliest, if not the justest course, is surely to leave untold such things as Mr. Polly would manifestly have preferred untold. Mr. Polly had declared that, when the cyclist discovered him, he was seeking a weapon that should make a conclusive end to Uncle Jim. That declaration is placed before the reader without comment. The gun was certainly in possession of Uncle Jim at that time, and no human being but Mr. Polly knows how he got hold of it. The cyclist was a literary man named Warspite, who suffered from insomnia. He had risen and come out of his house near Lamham just before the dawn, and he discovered Mr. Polly partly concealed in the ditch by the Potwell churchyard wall. It is an ordinary dry ditch, full of nettles and overgrown with elder and dog-rose, and in no way suggestive of an arsenal. It is the last place in which you would look for a gun, and he says that when he dismounted to see why Mr. Polly was allowing only the uh, latter part of his person to show, and that it would seem by inadvertency, Mr. Polly merely raised his head and advised him to 
look out and added he's let fly at me twice already he came out under persuasion and with gestures of extreme caution he was wearing a white cotton nightgown of the type that has now been so extensively superseded by pyjama sleeping suits and his legs and feet were bare and much scratched and torn and very muddy Mr. Warspite takes that exceptionally lively interest in his fellow-creatures which constitutes so much of the distinctiveness and complex charm of your novelist all the world over, and he at once involved himself generously in the case. The two men returned at Mr. Polly's initiative across the churchyard to the Potwell Inn, and came upon the burst and damaged rook-rifle near the new monument to Sir Samuel Harpon, upon the corner by the yew. "'That must have been his third go,' said Mr. Polly. "'It sounded a bit funny.' The sight inspirited him greatly, and he explained further that he had fled to the churchyard on account of the cover afforded by the tombstones from the flight of small shot. He expressed anxiety for the fate of the landlady of the Potwell Inn and her grandchild, and led the way with enhanced alacrity along the lane to that establishment. They found the doors of the house standing open, the bar in some disorder several bottles of whisky were afterwards found to be missing, and Blake, the village policeman, rapping patiently at the open door. He entered with them. The glass at the bar had suffered severely, and one of the mirrors was starred from a blow from a pewter pot. The till had been forced and ransacked, and so had the bureau in the minute room behind the bar. An upper window was opened, and the voice of the landlady became audible, making inquiries. They went out and parleyed with her. She had locked herself upstairs with the little girl, she said, and refused to descend until she was assured that neither Uncle Jim nor Mr. Polly's gun were anywhere on the premises. Mr. Blake and Mr. Warspite proceeded to satisfy themselves with regard to the former condition, and Mr. Polly went to his room in search of garments more suited to the brightening dawn. He returned immediately with a request that Mr. Blake and Mr. Warspite would just come and look. They found his apartment in a state of extraordinary confusion, the bedclothes in a ball in the corner, the drawers all open and ransacked, the chair broken, the lock of the door forced and broken, one door-panel slightly scorched and perforated by shot, and the window wide open. None of Mr. Polly's clothes were to be seen, but some garments which had apparently once formed part of a stoker's workaday outfit, two brownish-yellow halves of a shirt, and an unsound pair of boots, were scattered on the floor. A faint smell of gunpowder still hung in the air, and two or three books Mr. Polly had recently acquired had been shied with some violence under the bed. Mr. Warspite looked at Mr. Blake, and then both men looked at Mr. Polly. "'That's his boots,' said Mr. Polly. Mr. Blake turned his eye to the window. "'Some of these tiles have just got broken,' he observed. I got out of the window and slid down the scullery tiles. 
Mr. Polly answered, omitting much, they both felt, from his explanation. "'Well, we better find him and have a word with him,' said Blake. "'That's about my business now.' But Uncle Jim had gone altogether. He did not return for some days. That perhaps was not very wonderful. But the days lengthened to weeks, and the weeks to months, and still Uncle Jim did not reoccur. A year passed, and the anxiety of him became less acute. A second healing year followed the first. One afternoon, about thirty months after the night's surprise, the plump woman spoke of him. "'I wonder what's become of Jim,' she said. "'I wonder sometimes,' said Mr. Polly. End of chapter 9